Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you for this time that we can meet together to um, receive encouragement and uh, Christian training. We pray that you would inspire us with your word and that we would um, really learn from your word today, Lord. We pray that you would bless our worship and the service. And amen. All right, so um, we've got a few sections for this sermon. The first one is called Right Thinking About Motivation. So we're just going to get right into it. Um, so I, I have a handout. This definition should be in the handout. I can't remember if I put this definition in the slides. But I'm going to start out by defining what I mean by motivation. So for the purposes of this sermon, I'm defining motivation as an emotional sense of drive to do something or of willingness to do something. So motivation can mean a lot of different things that are all very similar but very distinct. So um, hopefully I don't end up using multiple definitions even though I say I'm going to use this one. But for the purposes of this sermon, I'm defining motivation as an emotional sense of drive to do something or of willingness to do something. So the Christian life takes a certain amount of motivation and we all struggle with motivation in multiple areas. We all struggle with motivation in multiple areas. So, <laughs> nah, that doesn't bother me. I have my coffee. <laughs> but coffee isn't the solution to everything. We still struggle with motivation in multiple areas. But um, the first point I wanted to get to, besides the definition of right thinking about motivation, is that um, you are responsible for your level of motivation. And there's a few reasons why, and we're going to get into why. Number one is because you have control over it. You have indirect control over all of your emotions. I was talking with someone, and it's what gave me the idea to do the sermon. And um, I got the sense that they were kind of waiting to do things that they should be doing until they had the motivation, and they were praying for motivation. And, uh, and what I decided to tell them was... Um, you know, praying for more motivation is like praying for God to do the dishes for you. You have to do the dishes. You can pray for God's help, but you have to do them. And if you want motivation, you have to um, motivate yourself, or you have to maintain your level of motivation, because you have control over it, and therefore you have responsibility for it. You have indirect control over all your emotions. So I'm gonna, I've explained that concept a bit before in other sermons, but I'm going to go and explain it again. So, Because um, all your emotions are controlled by your thoughts at the core of it. All emotions come from thoughts. Uh, I commonly use the example when explaining this point. Um, if somebody walks into the room dressed as a bear and they're dressed convincingly, I'm going to feel afraid. But that's only because I think there's a bear in the room. If I didn't think that, I wouldn't feel afraid. There are no emotions that aren't attached to thoughts. You don't have direct control over your emotions, but you have control over your thoughts. And your thoughts control your emotions. So you have indirect control over all of your emotions via your thoughts. 
your motivation is a direct result of what you believe in your heart. So I'm going to give an example. Let's say you don't have motivation to do the dishes. But if you believe that for some reason a person was going to give you a million dollars for doing the dishes, you would have motivation. Unless, of course, you believed for some reason that person was lying, which they probably are. But The motivation you have is a direct result of what you believe, and you choose what you believe. Belief is always a choice. There's nothing a person believes that they didn't choose to believe. If you tell me that you're going to show up at my house at 4.30 today or to bring pizza, I can choose to believe you or I can choose to not. But it was my choice to believe you or to not. Nobody believes anything apart from choosing to. Even though that might be a choice they don't think about, they make it quickly, no one believes anything they don't choose to believe. You can never use not having motivation as an excuse to not do something because you're capable of causing you to have motivation. I'm not saying maintaining that levels of motivation is easy, but it is something that you have control over. So the second reason, and this is a similar reason, but why you're responsible for your level of motivation is because motivation is part of seeing life accurately. Seeing life accurately will inevitably lead to motivation. Like if I, if I believe that at my job, they're going to fire me if I um, don't show up over and over, that'd probably be seeing life accurate. That's probably going to happen. And if I believe that, it'll motivate me to show up at my job. Motivation is part of seeing life accurately, and no one else is going to see life accurately for you. You're responsible for your seeing life accurately. And motivation is a uh, consequence of seeing life accurately. But moreover, motivation kind of has to do with realizing something is important. And when something is important, you're responsible to recognize that it's important. You're not going to give an account to God at the end of your life and say, sorry God, I just didn't realize obeying you was important. If you forget about your, you and your wife's anniversary, you can't just say, sorry, babe, I didn't realize it was important. That doesn't let you off the hook. That's even worse. You are now in bigger trouble. When something is important, you're responsible for recognizing that it's important. So does that make sense that you, know, you have indirect control over your emotions and therefore over any sense of motivation? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm 
Yeah. Yeah. I didn't think sure. anything to make me feel panicky. Yeah. So I'm not sure that every single thought that that you can control everything just because of what you think. Sure. Um my theory of that, and I could totally be wrong about this, but my theory of how that works is there are certain substances that can change your natural disposition. So if you were not naturally in a state of mind to not be fearful, but maybe you have a few thoughts of fear, but they're so small that you don't actually feel anything, but then you have coffee and it amplifies your tendency to feel fear. That's just a theory. I could be totally wrong about that. Um... Well, that's a bit complicated, but thank God we have freedom in Christ and authority over that. But, um, right. But we're going to move on to the next section uh, the importance of discipline. So, even though you're responsible for your own level of motivation, motivation isn't the necessary thing, discipline is. Even though you're, you know, you're responsible for your level of motivation, motivation isn't the necessary thing. Discipline is. Discipline and motivation are not the same thing. So I have to find motivation as an emotional sense of drive to do something or of willingness to do something. Discipline, however, is the act of choosing to do a thing that you know needs done, even when you don't have motivation to do it. Discipline is the act of choosing to do something you know needs done when you don't have motivation to do it. And discipline is a character trait, is as being a person who frequently and does that, who exercises self-discipline regularly. So I more or less got this sermon done on Thursday, and then last night around 9 o'clock I realized, oh no, I have to change like half the sermon. The Bible doesn't actually talk about motivation, it talks about discipline. If you do a word search in the you know, top translations of the Bible, the word motivation doesn't show up once. Want to know what does show up? Discipline. Discipline and self-control. Discipline and self-control are synonymous. Just to show that point, we're going to look at you know, a bunch of verses that show how much the Bible has to say about it. Uh, David, I hope you're ready. Proverbs 16.32 in the New Living Translation. Better to be patient than powerful. Better to have self-control than to conquer a city. 2 Peter 1, 5-7. For this very reason, make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue, your virtue with knowledge, your knowledge with self-control, and self-control with steadfastness, and steadfastness with godliness, and godliness with brotherly affection, and brotherly affection with love. So that's 
Second Peter 1, 5 through 7 is a list of character traits that Peter says make every effort to have these things. Put all diligence into acquiring these character traits. Self-control is one of them. Self-discipline. We should, if, you, if we don't have discipline as a person, we should be putting all effort into obtaining it. We need to apply all diligence to have it. That's how important it is. It's also a fruit of the Spirit. Galatians 5, 22 and 23. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such things there is no law. So I've, you know, this is a list of verses just to really show the point, but you know, this isn't all the verses that show how important self-control is. I quit at a certain point because I'm like, we're not going to mention all of them. I'll just be reading the whole time. I won't even have a sermon to preach. But let's keep going. Titus 7 through 8. Titus chapter 1, 7 through 8. Uh, mentioning the qualities of an overseer. For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a, level, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. But if you read through the qualities of an overseer, they're qualities that all Christians should have. Like, you can't just read through it, well, I'm not an overseer, so it's fine if I'm a quick-tempered and a drunkard and violent. Like, no. These are qualities every Christian is supposed to have. Proverbs 25, 28. A man without self-control is like a city broken into and left without walls. 2 Timothy 1 1 verse 7. For God gave us a spirit not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. First Peter 4 7. The end of all things is at hand. Therefore, be self-controlled and sober-minded for the sake of your prayers. Titus 2, verse 2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith and love and steadfastness. And then later in the same chapter, in Titus 2, verse 6, likewise urge the younger men to be self-controlled. And then later, well, same person, Paul, in 1 Timothy 2, 9 through 10. Likewise, also, the women should adorn themselves in respectable apparel with modesty and self-control. So everybody is supposed to have self-control. Not with braided hair and gold and pearls and costly attire, but that which is proper for a woman who professes godliness with good works. 1 Corinthians 9, 24 and 27. Do you not know that in a race all runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do so to receive a perishable reef, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I myself may be disqualified. 
And then the last one that we're going to look at on this list, uh, Titus 2, 11 and 14 through 14. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope and appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify us for a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So, you know, that was a fairly long list of verses, and while I was studying this last night, I just quit adding them because I'm like, eh, that's long enough. But, um, you know, self-control means the same thing as discipline. It's choosing to do something even when you don't want to do it or choosing to not do something even though you want to do it. It's choosing to do the right thing even when you don't have motivation and you don't feel like it. Or choosing to not do the wrong thing even though you feel like it. I read this uh, quote um, from some person on Facebook, uh, some motivational speaker. Motivation comes from the natural human drive to achieve something but motivation doesn't last forever no matter how much you want something. It's a temporary effect created by the brain to boost you in the right direction. Discipline is the ability to continue pushing in the right direction when you no longer have motivation doing it for you. Discipline is far more important than motivation and you should never rely on motivation only. It's funny because I, I like got this sermon ready and I was going to do a whole sermon on motivation and then I was reading uh, The Great Omission in our discipleship group and I kind of realized I'm, I'm kind of missing the point. I mean, yeah, we do need motivation as Christians, but more than motivation, we need discipline. We're called to have discipline. And, you know, beyond that, the most motivated people I know are the people who have the most discipline. I think having the quality of discipline makes you more likely to feel motivation. The undisciplined person lives in a cycle. If I'm undisciplined and I don't feel like doing something, I'm not going to do it. Is my not doing it going to make me feel like doing it? No. no. What would make me more likely to feel like doing it if I did it? If, you're, if you don't regularly practice discipline, then you're probably trapped in this cycle. And the only way to break out of it is to practice discipline. If you don't practice discipline, then you just follow your emotions. And you know, your emotions lead you in circles. So I have a short list of, you know, the downfalls of living life without discipline. Um, number one, you'll be subject to wherever the wind blows you. If you don't develop the character trait of discipline and you don't feel like getting out of bed, you won't get out of bed. And that might not sound like a practical example because most of us, I don't think any of us struggle with things that bad. Hopefully not. 
But um, any area that you struggle with discipline that you don't have discipline in, any area that you don't have discipline in, you'll just be subject to wherever the wind blows you. That's not good. Secondly, if you don't have discipline, you won't accomplish much. I mean, if you look at the lives of Christians who have accomplished a lot for God's kingdom, they have discipline by the power of God's spirit. Without discipline, you won't accomplish much. And thirdly, you know, if you don't have discipline, you won't be able to love God or others like you should. Nobody always feels like loving and serving others. Nobody always feels like being generous or, um, you know, always serving, always turning the other cheek. Those things take discipline. The biggest thing I want to communicate with the section on discipline is um, discipline is more important than motivation and if you want to have more motivation, you should pursue having discipline. If you have discipline as a person, you'll develop motivation. Discipline's more important. All right, so I have a little bit that I wrote down about how to grow in discipline. I should eventually do a sermon just on this. Um, But in terms of like how we grow in discipline, I want to bring it back to the idea that I had in the Sanctification is Simple sermon, food, water, and practice, or the power of the word, the power of the spirit, and practice. So I really like this analogy for how to grow in Christian character. Um, the scriptures are like food, the Holy Spirit is like water, and the Christian is like an athlete. If a if an athlete eats food and water but doesn't practice, they're not going to grow. But if an athlete practices and works hard but doesn't eat water, they're really not going to be a good athlete, and they're going to die. They won't have energy for anything. They won't have energy to grow as an athlete or to perform as an athlete. So... Grow in discipline, we need to practice discipline. It's not something you get good at overnight. It's something you have to practice. But you need to be empowered by the power of God's word and the power of God's spirit. If you're not daily spending time in the word and time interacting with the spirit and prayer and worship and speaking in tongues, you probably won't have much energy for growing in discipline. You won't have supernatural energy for growing in discipline. You might have um, you know, fleshly energy for growing in discipline, but you won't have the supernatural power of God for growing in discipline, and that's what you need, the supernatural power of God for growing in discipline. If we could grow in discipline with our own you know, power of what we have naturally, we would have done it already. But it's also not enough to just spend time in the Word and in prayer and worship, and not pursue growing in discipline. The athlete needs to practice, not just eat and drink. Discipline needs to be practiced. No one becomes good at discipline overnight. 
Another thing about discipline is if you start developing it in one area, it becomes easier to develop it in other areas. So food, water, practice. Power of the word, power of the spirit, and practice. If you want to grow in discipline, you need the power of the word, the power of the spirit, and you need to practice it. And you'll get better at it over time. The second thing that's helpful for growing in discipline, uh, you need to see discipline as something that would be good for you and is worth pursuing. If you don't think of discipline as something that's good for you and worth pursuing, you're not going to pursue it. We're transformed by the renewer of all our minds, which you know kind of implies we need to be careful how we think. One thing you should make sure you think is that discipline is good for you and is worth pursuing. And if you want uh, more practical steps on, you know, how to pursue growing in discipline, um, if you feel like you don't have much discipline as an individual, since discipline is something you grow in, you know, step by step, and if you develop it in one area, it's easier to develop in others, I would make a list of some things that are easy enough that you could start doing them immediately, but hard enough that they would require discipline and aim to start doing them daily or weekly and get an accountability partner to check in on you and make sure you're doing them and to encourage you if you're not doing them. If you don't have any discipline as a person, you're not going to grow in it without like trying and having a plan. And as we just saw in the 12 passages we read, discipline is a biblically important quality. Discipline is very important according to the Bible. So discipline is far more important than motivation. But motivation is still important, it's still helpful and desirable, and since um, it kind of has to do with the title of the message, we're going to talk about what you can do to have more motivation, because ideally you would have discipline and motivation. Um, so I, I kind of have three basic things you can do to have more motivation. The first one is to have discipline. Because discipline is the number one thing you can do to have more motivation as a person, is to have discipline. And if you have discipline, it'll take less motivation to do anything. Whatever it is you're struggling to actually bring yourself to do, if you develop discipline, it won't take as much motivation to do that thing that you're struggling to do. So the first thing that we already talked about uh, you can do to have more motivation is to have discipline. The second thing I would say is you can practice thought management. So um, like controlling your thoughts um, and thinking thoughts that motivate you to keep you motivated. As an example, like when I worked at Subway, I would work some pretty long shifts sometimes. I worked like 
a few 16-hour shifts. Sometimes I would work 12-hour shifts. And when I started to struggle with like motivation, I would think about how they're paying me. And that motivated me. Um, you know, managing your thoughts is such an important thing as a Christian in any area. And it can really help if you struggle with motivation. Like you should be think if you're struggling with motivation in an area that's important, you should be thinking about why is it that I want to do this thing? And concentrate on your why. Concentrate on why it's worth doing. If you're trying to do something and you're struggling with it, if you never think about why it's worth doing, you're probably going to continue to struggle with motivation. But if you concentrate on this is worth doing, obeying God is worth doing, studying is worth doing because it'll pay off, you know, going to work when I feel kind of sick but not sick enough to not go to work will pay off. You need to think about how it's going to pay off. Thinking about how whatever you're trying to do is going to pay off or why it's worth it goes a long way. So number two, uh, practice thought management. And number three, if you want to have more motivation, very important one, pursue having a deeper passion for God. And that's... We're going to go into a bit more detail on that one. So I think passion for God is, you know, the foundation of Christian motivation. If you want to have high levels of motivation in all the areas that we as Christians are called to excel in, you know, you need passion for God as a foundation for that. It'd be unreasonable to like have motivation to pursue all the areas that we're called to pursue as Christians without having passion for God as the motivation. I'd question why a person would want to do it. I kind of realized this while preparing for this sermon because I started to think about how I went from being a, a fairly unmotivated person in most areas to being a highly motivated person. And in all the areas I made significant growth in, um, I wrote the lists of, I wrote reasons of like, well, why did I start growing in motivation in that area? So, you know, four areas almost everyone struggles with motivation is work, study, serving, and self-restraint. And I'm like, well, work, why did I want to grow in work? Oh, yeah, because I want money. But why do I want money? For God's kingdom. Amen. So, like, you know, anyone who knows me knows I'm frugal, and I put a good amount of effort into trying to have more money. But the only reason I do that is because I believe it makes a difference for God's kingdom. I use my money very strategically for God's kingdom. I have very specific reasons and goals for why I want money and what I plan to do with it and how it's going to affect God's kingdom. If it weren't for that, I wouldn't be nearly as motivated to have more money as I am. You know, study. Well, I want to study because I want to learn, because I value knowledge. But why do you value knowledge? I, started, I went from not valuing knowledge to valuing it because it makes a difference for God's kingdom. Knowledge equips you. Knowledge empowers you to do things that will advance God's kingdom. You know, serving. I used to not want to serve. Then I started to want to serve. Why? Because of God's kingdom and the importance of it. 
you know, self-restraint. Why would I want to not give in to temptation? Giving in to temptation is fun. It's because of passion for God and God's kingdom. If you want to have, like, a high level of motivation in all the areas that a Christian's called to excel in, it would be unreasonable to do so without passion for God as the foundation. And, you know, this just reminds me of two verses in John 14. Or, so let's turn to John 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is what Jesus was saying to the disciples. It kind of implies if we don't love him, we won't keep his commandments. Why would you want to keep God's commandments if you didn't love him? And later on in that chapter, John 14, 23 and 24, Jesus answered him, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come and make our home with him. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. I like how he just outright says the inverse at that point. Whoever does not love me does not keep my words. And the word that you hear is not mine, but the Father's who sent me. So that, the last part of this sermon, we're going to talk a little bit about some ideas of how one might pursue a deeper passion for God. Because you can't just muster up passion for God. You can't really muster up passion for anything. Like, passion doesn't work like that. You can't just get up and choose, I'm going to be passionate, just like you don't have direct control over your emotions. So I think there's like five ingredients that cause people to have passion for God. And all of these things are things we can pursue on a practical level. Uh, the first one is knowing God's love. Let's look at 1 John 4, 19 through 20. We love because he first loved us. We love because he first loved us. If anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he does not know, for he who does not love his brother um, whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. All the people I know who have like a, a real passion for God know God's love. It's, it's hard to have passion for God without like really having a sense of God's love. And knowing God's love is something we can pursue doing. You know, knowing God's love is something I struggle with. We, I think a number of us have struggles with it, but you can be intentional about fighting against your struggles with it. It says in Corinthians that um, you know, we have weapons powerful for destroying strongholds for taking every thought captive. We have thoughts that are contrary to the knowledge of Christ, and we need to take those captive. You have thoughts, probably, that are um, deceitful thoughts from the enemy about why God isn't loving, or why God doesn't love you, or why God loves you begrudgingly, or why God kind of loves you, but he doesn't really feel that affection about you. Those need taking captive. There's things you can do to pursue knowing God's love deeper, or knowing it deeply. 
can do Bible studies on it. You can meditate on what God's word says about God's love for you. The second thing that I think makes a difference, the second ingredient in like having a real passion for God, uh, knowing the importance of eternity and the greatness of the future that God has for the redeemed. Let's look at two verses um, from 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 15, 30 uh, through 32. Why are we in danger, danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus if the dead are not raised? Let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. So I use this verse to kind of connect... Um, You know, your concept of eternity has a great deal of whether or not you'll have passion for God or motivation to pursue his kingdom. If the dead are not raised, what's the point? If the dead are not raised, woe are we above all people. If the dead aren't raised, if eternity isn't going to be significant, what we're doing is utterly worthless. And we're smart enough to know that internally. You're going to feel like it's utterly worthless if you don't have a significant view of eternity. I think uh, this aspect, knowing not just that eternity is forever, but how great God's future is. If, if you would like to know more about that, look, listen to the sermon I did called Having an Eternal Perspective. But the future that God has planned for his people is glorious beyond what you can imagine. It will be more fun and exciting and awesome than we can imagine. That's enough to get a person passionate if they really believe that. Third thing, uh, having a vision for how God wants to redeem the world and how cool everything he wants to accomplish is. And again, these are things we can you know, pursue practically. You can meditate on the importance of eternity and you can study what the Bible says about it. You can study the Bible to find out what God wants to do to redeem the world and how cool it is. And you can meditate on it. We're going to uh, move along a bit quicker. The fourth thing, faith in God and that his will is what's best for you. You know, all belief is a choice, so this is something we can choose. But, you know, if I don't believe God's will is what's best for me, that's going to put a damper on any passion I would have about pursuing God. But God wants us to believe what's, that his will is what's best for us. It says in Hebrews 11, you know, if anyone wants to please God, he must have faith that God is and that God is a rewarder of those who seek him. If you want to please God, you have to believe that God's a rewarder of those who seek him. So faith in God and that his will is what's best for you, I think is an ingredient of passion for God. And number five, knowing and seeing God's glory in worship. I think this one makes a big difference. But this is... Um, if you've never had a powerful experience with the presence of God, if you've been attending here a while, you've probably heard about it, um, that it's you know, a common thing, you need to pursue that. 
seeing God's glory in worship is awesome and it is life-changing. If you hear people say that and you don't know what they're talking about, you should wonder what they're talking about. You should be curious about that. It should intrigue you. We, we need to be regularly pursuing seeing God's glory in worship. It's part of seeking to be filled with the Holy Spirit. As we see God's glory, we're changed into his likeness. And we can pursue that practically by getting to know God better through the scriptures. The better you know God, the better you'll be able to see his glory in worship. You know, you can also pursue it by spending time in prayer. I think prayer makes worship better. You know, some people, some times when people have meetings, they want to have prayer and then worship, or worship and then prayer. You know, the thought is that worship makes prayer better, but I think prayer makes worship better. I think they're both true. You know, if you spend time growing more intimate with God, you will enjoy worship more. If you spend time fellowshipping with the Spirit, you will enjoy worship more. So we should be pursuing God's glory in worship. And I think that's the fifth ingredient of you know, passion for God. So even though you can't muster up passion for God, you definitely can't, you, know, you can still pursue having a deeper passion for God, which is really just pursuing being more reasonable. Because the reasonable thing, given... God and his glory and eternity and the importance of things, having passion for God is the most reasonable thing you could do. And to any extent that we don't have passion for God, we're being unreasonable. So to pursue passion for God would be pursuing being more reasonable, being more level-headed, thinking more accurately. Anyways, in conclusion... You can't ever use lack of motivation as an excuse. God isn't going to accept it, and you shouldn't either. You're called to be disciplined, which is more important than motivation, but to a fair degree, you have control over your motivation. Not that it gets better overnight, but moreover, you should be disciplined. So second point in conclusion, motivation is not enough. No one's always motivated. Don't expect to always be motivated. We need discipline. Discipline's more important. And you shouldn't expect to be a very motivated person if you're not planning to be a disciplined person. Third point in conclusion. We should examine our lives. Do we have a passion for God like we should? And if we don't have a passion for God like we should, we should be praying about it and pursuing you know, the five things that I mentioned in practical ways. And the last point I have in conclusion, make sure you see discipline, self-discipline and self-control as something that's good for you and something that's worth pursuing. And if you don't regularly exercise it, make a plan to start. If you, can, thinking about it, can tell yourself, like, I don't have much discipline in my life, then you should come up with a plan to start. And there's some practical ways. You know, I would start fasting. Fasting is a good way to practice discipline and grow in discipline. Because if you have discipline in one area, it's easier to have discipline in other areas. 
a simple way to practice the exercise of discipline is to fast for a day. And if you want something else, maybe working out. Find a workout that's difficult and force yourself to do it. It's just an idea. Um, Anyways, let's close in prayer. Dear Lord, thank you for this day. Thank you um, for your word. We thank you that you will empower us to have discipline. We thank you for your wisdom and showing us that discipline is good for us, Lord. We pray that you would help us to not be discouraged over our lack of discipline, but to remind ourselves of your grace, Lord. We pray that we would thoroughly understand that we can't just have the level of discipline that we need in our own strength. We need daily empowerment from you, Lord. We pray that we would have that in the forefronts of our minds, that if we want to be as disciplined as we should, we need daily empowerment from you. We pray that we would pursue your power and we would pursue discipline and that you would make us useful for your kingdom. We thank you for your grace and amen.